Part One of Chapter Twenty Eight of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Andrus. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter Twenty Eight, Part One. Deerbrook commotions. Among many vague threats, there was one pretty definite menace which had encountered hope from various quarters of late. By whose agency, and by what means, he did not know, but he apprehended a design to supplant him in his practice. There was something more meant than that Mr. Foster from Blickley appeared from time to time in the village. Hope imagined that there was a looking forward to somebody else, who was to cure all maladies as soon as they appeared, and keep death at a distance from Deerbrook. It seemed to be among the poor people chiefly that such an expectation prevailed. Philip was sure that Mr. Rowland knew nothing of it, nor Mrs. Enderby. Mr. Gray, when spoken to, did not believe it, but would quietly and discreetly inquire. Mrs. Gray was sure that the Deerbrook people would not venture to discountenance altogether any one who had married into their connection so decidedly. Her young folks were to hear nothing of the matter, as it would not do to propagate an idea which might bring about its own accomplishment. At the almshouses to-day the threat had been spoken plainly enough, and Hope had found his visit there a very unpleasant one. It had been wholly disagreeable. When, within a mile and a half of the houses, a stone had been thrown at him from behind a hedge, it narrowly missed him. A little further on there was another, from the opposite side of the road. This indication was not to be mistaken. Hope leaped his horse over a gate, and rode about the field to discover who had attacked him. For some time he could see no one, but, on looking more closely to the fence, he saw signs in one part that hedging was going on. As he approached the spot, a labourer rose up from the ditch, and was suddenly very busy at his work. He looked stupid, and denied having thrown any stones, but admitted that there was nobody else in the field that he knew of. Further on, more stones were thrown. It was evidently a conspiracy, but Hope could find no one to call to account for it, but an old woman in one case, and two boys in another. As he rode up to the almshouses, the aged inmates came out to their doors, or looked from their fanciful Gothic windows, with every indication of displeasure in their faces and manner. The old women shook their heads at him, and some their fists. The old men shook their sticks at him. He stopped to speak to one man of eighty-three, who was sitting in the sun at his door, but he could get no answer out of him, nothing but growls about the doctor being a pretty doctor, not to have mended his patient's eyesight yet. Not a bit better could he see now than he could a year ago, with all the doctoring he had had, and now the gentleman would not try anything more. A pretty doctor, indeed. But it would not be long before there would be another who would cure poor people's eyes as if they were rich, and poor people's eyes were as precious to them as rich people's. He next went into a house where an aged woman was confined to bed with rheumatism, but her gossip stopped him in the middle of the room, and would not let him approach her, for fear he should be her death. As she had been lying awake the night before, she had heard her deceased husband's shoes dance of their own accord in the closet, 
and this was a sign that something was going to happen to somebody. She thought of the doctor at the time, and prayed that he might be kept from coming near her, for she knew he would be the death of her, somehow, as he had been of other folks. So Hope was obliged to leave her and her rheumatism to the gossips. The particular object of his visit to the place to-day, however, was a little girl, a grandchild of one of the pensioners, admitted by special favor into the establishment. This girl had smallpox, and her case was a severe one. Hope was admitted with unwillingness even to her, and was obliged to assume his ultimate degree of preemptoriness of manner with her nurses. He found her muffled up about the head with flannel, and with a slice of fat bacon folded in the flannel, tied about her throat, a means considered a specific for smallpox in some regions. The discarding of the flannel and bacon, of course, caused great offence, and there was but too much reason to fear that all his directions as to the management of the girl would be observed by contraries, the moment his back was turned. He had long ago found explanation and argument to be useless. All that he could do was to declare authoritatively that, if his directions were not followed, the girl would die, and her death would lie at the door of her nurses, that, in that case, he expected some of the people about her would be ill after her, but that if he was obeyed he trusted she might get through, and nobody else be the worse. Almost before he was out of the house, another slice of fat bacon was cut, and the flannels put to the fire to heat again. Hope mounted his horse to depart, just at the hour when the laborers were at their dinners in all the cottages around. They poured out to stare at him, some shouting that they should not have him long to look at, as they would get a better doctor soon. Some sent their dogs yelping at the horse's heels, and others vented wrath or jokes about churchyards. Soon after he had left the noise behind him, he met Sir William Hunter, riding, attended by his groom. Hope stopped him, making it his apology that Sir William might aid in saving the life of a patient in whom he was much interested. He told the story of the smallpox, of the rural method of treating it, which he had to contend, and proposed that Sir William should use his influence in securing for the patient a fair chance of her life. Sir William listened coolly, would certainly call at the almshouses and make inquiry, but did not like to interfere with the notions of the people there, made a point indeed of leaving them pretty much to their own ways, owned that it would be a pity the girl should die, if she really might be got through, would call, therefore, and inquire, and see whether Lady Hunter could not send down anything from the hall. He smiled rather incredulously, when assured that it was not anything that could be sent down from the hall that was wanted by the patient, but only the use of the fresh air that was about her, and the observance of her doctor's simple directions. Sir William next began to make his horse fidget, and Hope took the hint. "'This has been my business with you at present,' said he. "'At some more convenient time I should be glad of a little conversation with you on other matters connected with the almshouses.' Sir William Hunter bowed, put spurs to his horse, and galloped off, as if life or death depended on his reaching the hall in three minutes and a half. These hints of another doctor, a better doctor, a new man, met hope in other directions.' 
Mrs. Howell was once quoted as the whisperer of the fact, and the milliner's young lady was known to have speculated on whether the new doctor would prove to be a single man. No one turned away from such gossip with more indifference than hope, but it came to him in the form of inquiries which he was supposed best able to answer. He now told Hester of them all, warned her of the probable advent of a rival practitioner, and at the same time urged upon her a close economy in the management of the house, as his funds were rapidly failing. If his practice continued to fall off as it was now doing, he scarcely saw how they were to keep up their present mode of living. It grieved him extremely to have to say this to his wife in their very first year of their marriage. He had hoped to have put larger means in her power from year to year, but at present he owned his way was far from being clear. They had already descended to having no prospect at all. For all this Hester cared little. She had never known the pinchings of poverty any more than the embarrassments of wealth. She could not conceive of such a thing as being very anxious about what they should eat, and what they should drink, and wherewith they should be clothed, though if she had looked more narrowly at her own imaginations of poverty, she would perhaps have discovered on the visionary table always a delicate dish for her husband, in the wardrobe always a sleek black coat, and in his waiting-room a clear fire in winter, while the rest of the picture was made up of bread and vegetables, and shabby gowns for herself, and devices to keep herself warm without burning fuel. Her imagination was rather amused than alarmed with anticipations of this sort of poverty. It was certainly not poverty that she dreaded. A more serious question was how she could bear to see her husband supplanted and, in the eyes of others, disgraced. This question the husband and wife now often asked each other, and always concluded by agreeing that time must show. The girl at the almshouses died in a fortnight. Some pains were taken to conceal from the doctor the time and the precise spot of her burial points, which the doctor never thought of inquiring about, and of which it was therefore easy to keep him in ignorance. A few of the neighboring cottagers agreed to watch the grave for ten nights, to save the body from the designs of evil surgeons. One of the watchers reported, after the seventh night, that he had plainly heard a horse coming along the road, and that he rather thought it stopped opposite the churchyard. He had raised himself up, and coughed aloud, and that was no doubt the reason why nobody came. The horse must have turned back and gone away, whoever might be with it. This put the people on the watch, and on the eighth night two men walked about the churchyard. They had to tell that they once thought they had caught the doctor in the fact. They had both heard a loud whistle, and had stood to see what would come of it. They could see very well, for it had dawned some time. A person came through the turnstile with a sack, which seemed to leave his intentions in no doubt. They hid themselves behind two opposite trees, and both sprang out upon him at once. But it was only the miller's boy on his way to the mill. On the ninth and tenth nights nothing happened. The neighbors began to feel the want of their regular sleep, and the querulous grandmother, who seemed more angry that they meant to leave the poor girl's body to itself now than pleased that it had been watched at all, was compelled to put up with the assurances that doctors were considered to wish to cut up bodies within the first ten days, if at all, 
and were not apt to meddle with them afterwards. It was full three weeks from this time when Hope was sent for to the almshouses, after a longer interval than he had ever known to elapse without the old folks having some complaint to make. The inmate who was now ill was the least aged and the least ignorant and unreasonable person in the establishment. He was grateful to Hope for having restored him from a former illness, and, though now much shaken in confidence, had enough remaining to desire extremely to see his old friend, when he found himself ill and in pain. His neighbours wondered at him for wishing to court destruction by putting himself again into the hands of the suspicious doctor, but he said he could have no ease in his mind, and was sure he would never get well till he saw the gentleman's face again and he engaged an acquaintance to go to Deerbrook and summon him. This acquaintance spread the fact of his errand along the road as he went, and therefore, though Hope took care to choose his time so as not to ride past the cottage doors while the labourers were at dinner, his visit was not more private or agreeable than on the preceding occasion. The first symptom of his being expected on the road was that Sir William Hunter, riding as before with his groom behind him, fell in with Hope, evidently by design. Sir William Hunter's visit to the almshouses had produced the effect of making him acquainted with the discontents of the people, and had afforded him a good opportunity of listening to their complaints of their surgeon, without being troubled with the answers. Since the election, he had been eager to hear whatever could be said against Hope, whose vote, given contrary to Sir William's example and influence, was regarded by the baronet as an unpardonable impertinence. "'So you lost your patient down there, I find,' said Sir William, rudely. "'The girl slipped through your fingers after all. However, I did my duty by you. I told the people they ought to allow you a fair chance. I requested your interference on the girl's account, and not on my own,' said Hope. "'But, as you allude to my position among these people,' You will allow me to ask, as I have for some time intended, whether you are aware of the treatment to which I am subjected in your neighbourhood and among your dependents? I find you are not very popular hereabouts indeed, sir, replied the baronet with a half-smile, which was immediately reflected in the face of the groom. With your leave we will have our conversation to ourselves, said Hope. The baronet directed his groom to ride on slowly. Hope continued. The extreme ignorance of the country people has caused some absurd stories against me to be circulated and believed. If those who are not in the state of extreme ignorance will do me justice, and give me, as you say, a fair chance, I have no fear but that I shall live down calumnies, and, by perseverance, in my professional duty, recover the station I lately held here. This justice, this fair chance, I claim, Sir William, from all who have the intelligence to understand the case, and rightly observe my conduct. I have done my best in the service of these pensioners of yours, and excuse my saying that I must be protected in the discharge of my duty. Aye, there's the thing, Mr. Hope. That can't be done, you see. If the people do not like you, why, then, the only thing is for you to stay away. Then what is to become of the sick? Aye, there's the thing, Mr. Hope. If they do not like one, you see, 
why then they must try another that is what we have been thinking now if you take my advice you will not go forward to-day you will repent it if you do depend upon it they do not like you mr hope i need no convincing of that you do not seem disposed to stir sir william to improve the state of things so i will go and try what i can do by myself i advise you not sir mr hope shouted sir william as hope rode rapidly forward take care what you are about they do not want to see you again the consequences may be serious and this man is a magistrate and he fancies himself my patron thought hope as he rode on he wants me to throw up the appointment but i will not till i see that the poor old creatures can be consigned to care as good as my own if he chooses to dismiss me he may though we can ill afford the loss just now for one moment he had thought of turning back as sir william's caution had seemed to foretell some personal risk in proceeding but the remembrance of hester's parting look inspired him afresh instead of the querulous anxiety which had formerly harassed him from its groundlessness and apparent selfishness it was now an anxiety worthy of the occasion that flushed her cheek so far from entreating him to remain with her she had bidden him to go where his duty led him she had calculated the probable length of his absence and the watch was laid on the table as formerly but she had used the utmost expedition in sewing on the ring of his umbrella and had kissed her hand to him from the window with a smile he would not return to her without having fully discharged his errand she might be a soldier or sailor's wife after all thought he the hours of his absence were indeed very anxious ones to the family at home for nearly two hours the sisters amused themselves and one another as well as they could but it was a great relief when philip came in he would not believe anything they said however about their reasons for fear it was nonsense it was deerbrook talk what harm could a dozen old men and women at almost a hundred years apiece do to hope and the country people the labourers round they had their own business to attend to they would just swear an oath at him and let him pass and if they ventured to lay a finger on his bridle hope knew how to use his whip he would come home and get his dinner and be very dull they would see from having nothing to tell before philip had finished his picture of the dull dining they might expect morris entered and shut the door before she came forward to the table and spoke she said she did not like to make mysteries out of fear of frightening people and she hoped there would be nothing to be really afraid of now but if mr enderby thought he could contrive to meet her master out on the road and get him to leave his horse somewhere and come walking home by turnstile lane she thought it would be best and save some bad language at least charles had brought in word that people angry people were gathering at the other end of the street and her master could quite disappoint them by coming home on foot the back way how many angry people were there and what sort of people they were mostly countrymen out of the places round more of those than of deerbrook folks there were a good many of them so many as nearly to block up the street at one part if the ladies would step up into the boy's attic they would see something of what was going on from the little window there without being seen Philip snatched his hat and said he would soon bring them news. He hoped they would go up to the attic and amuse themselves with the show, 
for a mere show it would end in being, he was confident. He observed, however, that it would be as well to keep Charles at home, in case, as was possible, of a messenger being wanted. He himself would soon be back. Charles was called up into the drawing-room and questioned. Never before having been of so much importance, he was very grand in his statements, and made the most of all he had to say. Still, however, it was a story which no telling could have made other than an unpleasant one. Some of the people who had come in from the country had pitchforks. Two or three of the shopkeepers had put up their shutters. Many strangers were in the churchyard, peeping about the new graves, and others had set scouts on the road to give notice when Master was coming. Mrs. Plumstead was very busy scolding the people all round, but it did not do any good, for they only laughed at her. "'You may go, Charles, but do not set foot out of the house till you are bid,' said Hester, when she found the boy had told all he knew, and perhaps something more. Morris left the room with him, in order to keep her eye on him. "'Oh, Margaret, this is very terrible,' said Hester. "'Most disagreeable. We must allow something for Charles' way of telling the story, but yet—is there anything we can do, Hester?' Mr. Gray will surely be here presently. Do you not think so? Either he or Mr. Rowland, no doubt. Dr. Levitt is a magistrate, but this is Saturday, and he is so deep in his sermon, he could not be made to understand and believe till it would be too late. Do you go up to the attic, Margaret, and I will keep the hall door. I shall hear his horse sooner than any one, and I shall stand ready to open to him in an instant. Hark now! It was only the boy with the post-bags, trotting slowly to Mrs. Plumstead's, amusing himself by the way with observations on the unusual animation of Deerbrook. "'It is too soon yet, by half an hour,' said Margaret. "'He cannot possibly be here for this half-hour, I think. "'Do not wear yourself out with the standing in the hall so long. "'I must just say one thing, love. "'I fear all kinds of danger less for Edward than for almost anyone else in the world.' He does always what is most simple and right, and I think he could melt anybody's heart if he tried. Thank you, said Hester gratefully. I agree, and trust with you. But what hearts have these people? Or how can you get at them through such heads? But yet he will triumph, I feel. When Margaret went upstairs to the attic window, Hester moved a chair into the hall, softly opened the window a little, to facilitate her hearing whatever passed outside, and took her seat by it, listening intently. There was soon but too much to listen to. Shuffling feet multiplied about the door, and some of the grumbling voices seemed to come from men who had stationed themselves on the steps. Hester rose, and with the utmost care to avoid noise, put up the chain of the house-door. While she was doing this, Morris came from the kitchen, for the same purpose— she feared there was an intention to surround the house. She wished her master would keep away for a few hours at least. She could not think where all the gentlemen of the place were, that they did not come and see after her young ladies. Before the words were uttered there was a loud rap at the door. Morris made her mistress keep back, while she found out who it was, before letting down the chain. Hester knew it was not her husband's knock, and it turned out to be Mr. Gray's. Margaret came flying down, and they all exclaimed how glad they were to see him. "'I wish I could do you any good,' said he. 
but this is really a sad business, my dears. Have you heard anything, sir? Nothing about your husband. Enderby bade me tell you that he has gone out to meet him, and to stir up Sir William Hunter, who may be said to be the cause of all this, inasmuch as he never attempted to stop the discontent when he might. But that unlucky vote, my dear, that was much to be deplored. No use casting that up now, surely, observed Morris. Yes, Morris, there is, said her mistress. It gives me an opportunity of saying that I glory in the vote, and I would have my husband give it again to-day if he had to pass through yonder crowd to go up to the pole. My dear, remonstrated Mr. Gray, be prudent. Do not urge your husband on into danger. He has quite enthusiasm enough without, and you see what comes of it. But I am here to say that my wife hopes you and Margaret will retire to our house, if you can get round without bringing any of these troublesome people with you. We think you might slip out from the surgery, and along the lane, and through the Rowlands' garden door, and over the hedge which they tell me you managed to climb one day lately for pleasure. By this way you might reach our house without any one being the wiser. On no account whatever, said Hester. I shall not leave home, under any circumstances. You are very kind, said Margaret. But we are expecting my brother every moment. But he will follow you by the same road. End of section 1 Chapter 28